listening to West Virginia Week, a regular podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting that summarizes the top stories of the week. We began this week with interim meetings of the West Virginia Legislature, and then the 2024 regular session kicked off on Wednesday. Coming up, we'll hear about a new program to build tiny homes for kids, aging out of the foster care system, and a look back at the West Virginia water crisis. We'll also learn about the Governor's State of the State Address and the Minority Response. I'm your host this week, Eric Douglas. I'm the News Director here. Let's jump right in with a few short news stories. Legislators raised questions last Sunday about how state and federal money has been spent for flood and disaster recovery efforts. I reported this story. Allegations of misappropriation of funds have recently surfaced online about how the relief organization, volunteer organizations active in disaster, have used grant money and donated items. During the Joint Committee on Flooding meeting, during legislative interims, Finance Committee Chairman Eric Tarr grilled VOAD Executive Director Jenny Ganaway about how money was spent. At the end of the meeting, Tarr said he was not satisfied with Ganaway's answers and asked for the matter to be referred for further investigation. I think this matter should be referred to the Committee on Investigations and probably the board as a whole. Also should be referred to the State Auditor. Um, and also to the legislative auditor. It was not immediately clear when those organizations would begin looking into the allegations. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Eric Douglas in Charleston. One county's success in addressing student behavioral issues at a young age may inform the state's approach to the broader issue of school discipline. Chris Schultz has more. Rather than send students with the most serious disciplinary issues to a virtual learning or traditional homebound program, Raleigh County has implemented an intensive academy that aims to address the issues that are the core cause of students' behaviors. Alan Sexton is the Director of Special Education for Raleigh County Schools. He told lawmakers at the interim meeting of the Joint Standing Committee on Education Sunday about the success the county has found with a new alternative education scheme. As the numbers show, we've had a very high success rate, only having one student ever pulled back from a school setting to uh, provide additional supports because the transition didn't go well. Senate President Craig Blair has indicated that addressing school discipline issues and classroom disruption will be a legislative priority in the upcoming regular session. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. The state's developing plan to divert the mentally disabled from jails and state hospitals faces organizational and funding challenges. Randy Yowie has this story. Senate Bill 232, passed in the 2023 general session, called for a study group to help divert people with mental illness and substance abuse problems from the criminal justice system. In an initial plan the study group leaders presented to the Interim Joint Standing Committee on the Judiciary, the key challenges were funding and expanding community treatment programs while balancing concerns for public safety. The study group chair, Dr. David Clayman, said a starting point might be establishing crisis stabilization centers where law enforcement making an initial arrest would have alternatives to incarceration in jail or a state hospital. In 72 hours, we could have a treatment plan with our coordinated services and get them out and get them taken care of. Clayman says reaching a final plan is a work in progress and needs one more year. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie in Charleston. The West Virginia Child Advocacy Group, or WVCAN, saw a nearly 10% increase in children served in the past five years. Emily Rice has more. 
WV CAN operates 21 Child Advocacy Centers, or CACs, which provide official service to 46 counties in the state. Each CAC provides a safe, child-friendly facility where child protection, criminal justice, and treatment professionals work together to investigate abuse, hold offenders accountable, and help children heal. Kate Flack is the CEO of WV CAN. She said awareness of the program could account for the increase in new children served. More children are, are disclosing um, to mandated reporters. More children, are their cases are being investigated by CPS and law enforcement. And CPS and law enforcement make referrals to child advocacy centers. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. We have two stories from Curtis Tate in the aftermath of a denial of Appalachian Power's request to raise rates to make up for money the company spent to buy coal. Appalachian Power says it's exploring legal options against the West Virginia Public Service Commission. In a decision Tuesday, the PSC denied the recovery of $232 million of the $553 million the company sought from electricity customers to account for higher fuel and purchase power costs from 2021 to last year. The PSC did allow the recovery of $321 million over 10 years. That amounts to $2.50 a month on the average residential customer's bill, and they will begin paying that on September 1st. In a statement, Appalachian Power President and Operating Chief Aaron Walker called the Commission's ruling disappointing and deeply troubling. The Kanawha County Commission, which asked the PSC to deny the entire amount, praised the decision and called it one of the most substantial disallowances in regulatory history. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. Appalachian Power's parent company will report a pre-tax loss as a result of the West Virginia Public Service Commission decision this week. American Electric Power reported Thursday to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission that it will record a pre-tax charge of $222 million for the third quarter of 2023. That reflects the PSC's disallowance of $232 million of the $553 million the company sought to recover from electricity customers for fuel costs going back to 2021. In addition to helping reduce the company's tax burden, the loss appears to have no effect on AEP's plan to pay its shareholders $1.9 billion in 2024, $200 million more than it paid them in 2023, according to an investor presentation this week. Appalachian Power did say Wednesday that it planned to explore legal options for the PSC ruling. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. Appalachian Power is an underwriter of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. You're listening to West Virginia Week, and now some of our top feature stories. Foster kids often don't have anywhere to go when they turn 18. A new program in Philippi, in Barber County, is working to help provide housing and work for some of them. Caroline McGregor has this story. New Vision is a non-profit Christian organization that provides job training for young adults and at-risk youth. A $750,000 grant in affordable housing program funding will support construction of the first five tiny houses for 12 at-risk youth aging out of foster care or who are in life transition. CEO and president of New Vision, Rustin Seaman, says the money will help fund basic infrastructure like plumbing and electricity as work begins to develop the village. Our blueprint plan calls for a village of 24 units 
And so it's about a two and a half million dollar development. And this grant will pay for the first five units to be built and installed. And then one fifth of the infrastructure, the one fifth of the road, one fifth of the septic system, uh, one fifth of those elements. So it's a great gift. The goal is to turn the village into a thriving community. Seaman says the young men who live there will be gainfully employed at an on-site tiny house factory that will continue to produce tiny homes for this and future villages. When complete, the village will offer 24 units, 12 of which will be for adults, who include retired school teachers, veterans, widows or single people with strong life experience. Seaman says the adults will care for and mentor the youth. Everybody would live in the village. The 12 young people that are in job training and learning life skills would then have neighbors that become friends and they would have family. That's probably the number one thing about kids aging out of foster care is most of them have their family life almost totally disrupted. Some of them don't have anyone in their life right now called family. The proposed tiny house village is a sustainable effort, which Seaman says offers a high probability of positive outcomes for many people. The village will have two full-time employees, including a property manager and a relational coordinator. 23-year-old Anthony Hinkle has been in the foster care system twice. Both of his parents were drug users and both are now deceased. His memories are laced with trauma. The first time, it wasn't my choice. I was a kid, and I don't really remember too much about it. The second time, my mom met two people in the hospital she didn't know, and with the heart she had, she let them move in. Well, they ended up stealing my dad's drugs, like his medicine. It got to the point to where my dad threatened to take a Bowie knife and gut me like a fish, and uh, my mother, in pure panic, did not know what to do, and she gave up her parental rights to protect me and my brother. Early on, Anthony learned what it's like to have no one to turn to. When you're alone, you know, you don't have much of a support system. And you always, you crave other people. You know, we're made to be social. We're made to be getting out of our comfort zone and talking to others whether we want to or not, you know. We're supposed to be in this together. Society and everything else has changed everything to the point to where we're against each other. And it's me, 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 not we, we, we. Anthony briefly attended college with plans to become a caseworker. His plans were foiled, but he now has an opportunity beyond his expectations. With his life experience and empathy for others in a similar plight, his job will be to greet and brief the youth on expectations to give them a clear foundation as they learn new life skills alongside their new family. In order to give these kids a support system, they need someone that knows what it's like to go without, someone to know what it's like that... At the end of the day, you may feel alone, but you're not actually alone because you've got people that are encouraging you to go to work, encouraging you to be time efficient, preparing you for the real world. New Vision got its inspiration for the tiny homes from Eden Village, a national model that builds villages for chronically homeless people. The organization helped with New Vision's business plan, while Seaman's son, Rustin Ray, a recent WVU landscape architecture graduate, helped complete the design of the village. A heated warehouse will house early production of the tiny homes, while groundbreaking for the new Vision Village is expected to take place in the spring. The first five homes have to be done within one year period of time, but we believe probably by Earth Day we'll have our first kind of big celebration. And by that time, we really hope to, you know, have the first unit, you know, on the ground and ready for uh, being reviewed. 
Siemens says fundraising efforts will continue over the summer while completing the design plans and building a manufacturing hub for the houses themselves. New Vision's job training program will be incorporated into the process. We'll have to hire a few more people for our staff to be able to build. We need an electrician. We need some people with skill to lead the jobs. Siemens said the ultimate goal is to develop a factory that can produce 70 tiny house units a year. West Virginia has the highest population of children that have been placed in foster care by percentage. We had received a one-year grant to do a, a report, a national report, on kind of the state of affairs for kids when they're aging out of foster care. And that led us to this whole initiative because so often young people on their 18th birthday then become homeless, 38%, which is a national tragedy, and 58% of the young men end up in trouble with the law in the first 18 months after aging out of foster care. New Vision is using those statistics to optimize opportunities for a better lifestyle for young men transitioning out of foster care. Most available funds for housing or job development are not in the same location. The design of New Vision Village will provide both a place to live and work in the same location while offering young adults a stable environment. We'll get some shovels out and we'll invite uh, the people from the bank and we'll invite some officials and we're hoping to do it. We're looking at Martin Luther King Day as possibly a date when we will at least officially launch the project. It'll go fairly slow while the weather is cold and the ground is messed up. But once the good weather of spring comes, um, fairly soon on, the, the roads will start to develop and it'll be an exciting year for us. Siemens says talks are underway for future plans to build a village for young women in Morgantown. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Caroline McGregor. Ten years ago, a state of emergency and water advisory was issued for nine West Virginia counties following a chemical spill in the Elk River. Appalachia Health News reporter Emily Rice has more on the health effects of the past decade. In January of 2014, state environmental experts estimated that 7,500 gallons of a chemical called methylcyclohexane, methanol, or MCHM, from Freedom Industries, Inc., leaked into the Elk River. West Virginia American Water told more than 100,000 customers in Boone, Cabell, Clay, Jackson, Kanawha, Lincoln, Logan, Putnam, and Roan counties not to ingest, cook, bathe, wash, or boil water. Water in this coverage area was okayed only for flushing and fire protection. As of January 13, 2014, previous DHHR Secretary Karen Bowling announced at a press conference that 14 people were admitted to the hospital, 231 were treated and released. West Virginia Poison Control received more than 1,000 calls. No deaths were blamed on the spill. Paul Zimkavich, director of the West Virginia Water Research Institute, explained the chemical volatility. MCHM, which is of course uh, methylcyclohexane methanol. It's a um, relatively volatile compound and when, when I say that, that means it tends to, uh, first of all, uh, float on top of the water uh, and, and 
since it floats on top of the water and it's and it's volatile, so it's lighter than the water, less dense than the water. So it floats on top just like an oil would, and and it uh, ten, tends to be uh, volatile, which means that if you give it a chance, the the MCHM disperses as a gas into the atmosphere. One of Zimkovich's crew was on site at Freedom Industries to study the spill in 2014. We uh, mobilized a crew. Uh, one of uh, our, our crews here at the uh, Water Research Institute to go downstream from the uh, spill point and measure how much uh, MCHM was found in the Elk and then the Kanawha Rivers. And what we found, it was pretty much dispersed uh, fairly quickly and uh, was non-detectable by the time it got to the um, to the Ohio River. Zimkavich said one of the things that went wrong during the spill was that the water intake at the water treatment plant remained on, pulling the chemical compound along with water into the water distribution system for nine counties. So the MCHM uh, was essentially trapped in these pipes, distribution pipes, and it took a long time to flush that MCHM back out of the system. Mike McCauley is a clinical associate professor in WVU's Department of Occupational and Environmental Health Sciences. A group of his students volunteered to work in the Charleston area during the spill. Uh, going around informing, helping to inform people and also taking information about what people were doing to kind of protect themselves. So it was uh, a time when we got to talk a lot more about uh, chemical exposures, environmental chemical exposures that people had not thought about before. Macaulay called it a time of stress and worry for the state. And it was a difficult time because both drinking and bathing were something that uh, people were worried about doing because they didn't know what the long-term health effects were. The 2014 water crisis spurred the creation of WVU's School of Public Health, which was previously the Department of Community Medicine. And then one of the recommendations that Dr. Gupta, in fact, made uh, was that there should be a School of Public Health at West Virginia University, which was the uh, impetus for uh, turning our Department of Community Medicine into a school, a whole school of public health. While the water crisis left thousands without water for weeks on end, Macaulay said he has not heard of any long-term health effects from the spill. Long-term, uh, I've not heard of anything. At the time of the spill, the short-term health complaint Macaulay heard most often was headaches. While some policies and practices have changed since the 2014 spill, Macaulay believes there is still plenty of room for improvement. There, there needs to be um, regular good inspections and, and reporting that, that's done from that. Uh, we found that the leaks that were occurring didn't seem to get taken seriously uh, as soon as they possibly could have, we think. Macaulay also emphasized the need for inflammation as a symptom to be taken more seriously and to report any exposure to any chemical to a doctor. So we know inflammation can lead to lots of things. Um, yeah. We don't know how much inflammation leads to what. Um, necessarily, but we know it, it leads to all sorts of nasty things. And so uh, we should keep it in mind and maybe make sure our, our docs know uh, that, yeah, this is this is part of my, my medical history. By January 17, 2014, the last of the Do Not Use water restrictions were lifted for the last customer area in West Virginia American Waters Kanawha Valley District. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Many people plan to start a diet as their New Year's resolution, but studies have shown that restrictive diets have high rates of failure. 
Reporter Chris Schultz spoke with a registered dietitian and WU Extension Specialist, Gina Wood, about more sustainable changes to have a larger impact on your health in the long term. Can you tell me a little bit about the appeal or the allure of uh, starting a diet with the new year? <laughs> you know, the new year is something that we think of as, as you know, starting over, starting again, um, refreshing, rejuvenating. And I think, you know, oftentimes um, because the holidays are, you know, they can be a time of indulgence for people that we feel we have to start to do something differently in terms of our eating habits after that sort of period of celebration and indulgence. And that can lead to subscribing to, you know, diet culture um, as, a, as a way to start the new year. I think that that may have something to do with it. Yeah. So that term diet culture, what, uh, what do we mean when we use that term? You know, I think it can mean, you know, lots of different things. I'm not sure that it really has you know, a, a real set definition, but, you know, I, I think about it as a, you know, a set of beliefs that is related to food and related to weight that we tend to ground in, you know, myths and unrealistic expectations. And I think, I think when we subscribe to diet culture, we tend to separate food into good and bad categories, which then causes us to assign those values to ourselves when we eat those foods. And I think that can be really harmful. So yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about the harm involved here, because you talked about this, this desire for rejuvenation, this, this desire for maybe uh, a course correction after the indulgences of the holiday. All of that sounds good. So, so what is the concern here in the new year from, from a dietary standpoint? Dieting can have detrimental effects on us um, mentally, physically, socially. It tends to lead to extremes in behavior, like severely restricting calories or engaging in excessive amounts of exercise, um, you know, all for the purpose of losing weight rather than achieving a healthier self. It increases the risk of, of poor body image. It can contribute to um, disordered eating. Subscribing to that diet culture, engaging in those dieting behaviors, especially if it's repeated, can lead to um, weight cycling, which is the repeated loss and gain of weight over time. Um, and that can actually be harmful um, to our cardiovascular systems. You know, excessive dieting or weight cycling is, um, you know, can be really harmful. What are some general guidelines for people who are hoping to improve their health in the new year? I think when we think about improving health, you know, asking ourselves not how do I want to look or how much weight do I want to lose, but how do I actually want to feel? Those are the questions that that I think can lead to some um, you know, kind of recognition of changes that that people can make that that they can maintain and that are realistic for them. Focus on on how food makes you feel as opposed to, you know, how many calories does it have or how is it going to make me look in the long term? But, you know, if you're looking for some, you know, practical tips, my advice is to start with something that's actually achievable. So start with setting a goal that you know you can achieve because success breeds success. Um, you know, if you are a soda drinker and you recognize that you would like to maybe cut down on that, start with 
thinking about, you know, when and how and where do I drink soda and what are the instances that I might be able to switch that out with a glass of water or a glass of milk? Um, you know, something that's very doable, that's very realistic. You know, um, we set ourselves up for failure when we try to make those drastic changes that we can't maintain. So start with really small goals that are behavior based um, rather than, you know, assigning value to particular foods or trying to, to cut out, um, you know, entire food groups. Uh, so, so where can people find more information about actual, you know, scientifically based nutrition? So um, we have a couple of, of resources that I would recommend. So the, the old food pyramid is now called MyPlate, um, and that is a government resource. It's myplate.gov, um, and that gives us scientific information on um, the types of foods, um, the quantities of foods, the nutrients that we need to be healthy, and it, it is grounded in science and evidence. So I think, you know, that is one place that people can start. Look for your government resources, you know, try not to rely on other types of media. You're mentioning social media um, because there, there, are, there is so much misinformation out there. People get really caught up in, um, you know, relying on media, relying on sources of information that are not necessarily grounded in science and evidence um, to, to guide their eating behaviors. And, um, you know, seek out your, your registered dietitian. Those, those resources that are, that are grounded in science and evidence is what I would recommend. That was Gina Wood speaking with reporter Chris Schultz about New Year's dieting and healthy eating. You can find a longer version of the conversation on our website at wvpublic.com. Org. Governor Jim Justice's final State of the State address Wednesday night highlighted the homespun phrases he's known for and millions of state surplus dollars proposed for a variety of projects. Randy Yoe has the story. Governor Justice began his eighth and final State of the State address to a joint session of the legislature reminding all in the room what his dad said. Don't confuse effort with accomplishment and there's always something you can do. I believe that. I believe that if you give it to God above and you give your best and you give your best like nobody's business, good things will happen. He touted his efforts to provide school choice, to enhance tourism, and embrace diversifying the economy, adding his usual caveat of never forgetting fossil fuels. And for those crazies that are out there in la-la land that believe we can do without fossil fuels today, go back to your crazy stuff. You know, to be perfectly honest, I don't want to starve to death in the dark. On the heels of his personal income tax cuts, Justice proposed eliminating Social Security taxes on everyone and instituting a child and dependent care tax credit. To where folks that are struggling with daycare can at least write them off your, your taxes against your revenue. We need this, and we need this very badly, and we need it right now. Justice proposed $50 million for the state-of-the-art agricultural lab at West Virginia State University, $3 million for crisis pregnancy centers, $20 million for senior centers, $5 million for charter school growth, $150 million for the school building authority, and $100 million to bolster West Virginia hospitals. And this will help a lot of folks. You know, our West Virginia hospitals all across our land step up for us over and over and over and over and over. Justice pointed to an end of the two-year correction state of emergency with more than 350 National Guard members continuing to work in state jails and prisons. 
You know, we are, immediate, we are effective as we speak, downsizing the National Guard in our facilities. And it is my hope beyond belief that by the end of the summer, the National Guard will be out of our facilities and we will have solved this problem in many ways. A high school girls basketball coach for decades, Justice asked lawmakers to rethink the high school transfer rules that he said were creating lopsided scores in an uneven playing field. And we have made this situation to where we are going to absolutely, if we don't watch out, we are going to ruin, and I said ruin, high school sports in West Virginia. It's going to really hurt us. Now, I don't know exactly what the right solution is, but I'm telling you, there's some dead smart people in this room, and today I am absolutely pleading with you to figure it out. As Justice finished his address, Speaker of the House Roger Hanshaw, a Republican from Clay County, introduced House Bill 4025, the governor's proposed budget appropriation for fiscal year 2025. And now the legislative debate will begin. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie in Charleston. Thursday, on the first episode of The Legislature Today, our daily news show that covers the West Virginia Legislature, Randy Yoey also spoke with Senator Mike Caputo, a Democrat from Marion County, and House Minority Leader Sean Hornbuckle from Cabell County to get their response. Let's start out with just a general perception of what you heard last night from the governor. Well, you know, the governor said a lot, but I feel like the overarching tone was a lot of collaboration. He really touted tourism, diversifying the economy. And if we could start there, uh, think about this. I mean, the Biden administration has been huge with pumping dollars into West Virginia. But then when you, you know, take that down a notch, Senator Joe Manchin, Shelley Moore Capito, they have worked together in a bipartisan manner to help deliver those goods to the state of West Virginia. And then with the leadership of the Speaker in the House, Roger Hanshaw, also Senate Craig, uh, President Craig Blair, he's helped a lot. But they put a plan together that's involved both Democrats and Republicans, Marshall University, West Virginia, West Virginia State. And again, that has been the tone that if we work together, we can really do this thing. Senator Caputo, what stood out to you? Well, I think uh, Minority Leader Hornbuckle uh, uh, elaborated on how we're trying to work together and do good things for West Virginia. Some of the ideas that the governor uh, put out front have been Democratic ideas for years. And, and I'm happy to see that finally someone's taking those ideas and running with them, like eliminating the tax totally on Social Security. That will help so many retired West Virginians. We want to, we always talk about how we want to help our seniors, and sometimes, you know, we talk a lot more than, than we do. This will really help a lot of people who's living on Social Security benefits, a, a, a Democratic proposal that's been around for years and years and years. And, of course, child tax credit, which is near and dear to my minority leader, Senator Wolfel, was talked about, and that's another Democratic uh, uh, initiative that we want to make sure we take care of parents who have to pay for child care but go out and work and, and take care of their families as well. So those are two things that were very, very, uh, very, very uh, important to me. And speaking on that, on that child care, which is something that we've, we've run with since probably the 50s as Democrat core values in child care and education. Uh, one of my members, Delegate Kayla Young, uh, she is also working to complement the Senator uh, Mike Wolfel's ideas and doing some really, really innovative things in child care, as am I. Uh, so we're really excited about the opportunity to help a lot of our families. In fact, do you both get the feeling in both of your chambers that I, we hear from the leadership as well and the governor that something with child care is going to happen this session? It has to happen. I mean, and 
you have to think about it. I mean, we're talking about the economy. We can't have a robust economy if we don't have childcare. We got to make sure people can get to work, that they can put their child uh, in a good place to keep learning, not just the care. And so it's wildly important for our economy to keep growing. We talked about education. Last night we heard the governor talk a little bit about school choice, talked about a certain amount of money that would go to enhance charter schools. Yet he spent a lot of time talking about the value of public schools and people should be involved. Uh, what about the Democrats? How do you feel on that? Well, you know, I certainly think it's a horrible idea to take public money and invest in charter schools. These were supposed to be profitable schools, which we, uh, as Democrats, didn't like this whole plan of taking taxpayer dollars away from the masses to benefit the very few. Well, now it appears as though these charter schools are not profitable, so we want to throw some more state money at that. I, I think the public should be uh, concerned deeply about that proposal, and I think that money should stay in the public schools. And I do appreciate what the governor said about public schools. I just wish that we would focus more on the dollars going to public schools. You don't want to outlaw school choice completely. No, we don't want to outlaw it completely. And, and we understand the value of a parent being able to choose for their child. However, when the governor comes out, we appreciate him saying he wants education to be the centerpiece. Well, it's time we start doing. And with the money that we're spending elsewhere, we need to make meaningful pay raises for our teachers, which is so important to us. But also we have found with the Hope Scholarship, there has been dollars, taxpayer dollars, that is leaving our state today, Randy, to go fund Ohio, PA, Maryland, with these private schools. That is money leaving our public education system. We heard a lot of announcements, LG, Amazon's here. What good are these jobs if we are not helping our children to have a brighter future through our educational system? That was House Minority Leader Sean Hornbuckle and Senator Mike Caputo speaking with Randy Oey for the legislature today. To hear the rest of that discussion, visit our website. Tune in every Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. on both radio and television for the legislature today. That's it for West Virginia Week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week. As always, you can see these stories and more at wvpublic.org. I'm Eric Douglas. <music> <laughs>